are entering the Freedom Hut. Democrats bring a Watergate-era official to Capitol Hill, and uh, it basically does nothing. We'll talk about how this factors into the Mueller probe and also the latest on how dodgeball is a tool of oppression. Trump seems to have gotten a deal with Mexico based on his tariff threat and a whole lot more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Trump is showing true Nixonian (laughs) style. Trump is Nixon on steroids and stilts. If I had to channel a little of Richard Nixon, I think he'd tell this president he's going too far. This is the sort of stuff of a banana republic. This is what an autocrat does. Frighteningly dictatorial. He's thinking like uh, Putin would think. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. John Dean down on Capitol Hill of, of Watergate infamy. This guy is is Avenatti-like in his understanding of how to push the media buttons and just say the things they're so desperate to hear. Yeah. Oh, he's Nixonian and Banana Republic and dictator and... <laughs> what, a, what a joke. What a joke. But sure enough, today he was down on Capitol Hill testifying before the Congress as though he has something to add He's a bystander. He's just someone from a long time ago who was involved in something that has nothing to do with this. But because the media in this town, in particular in D.C., view the torpedoing of the Nixon presidency as the as the highlight of all journalism of all time. They think it's the single greatest moment for journalism in this country's history. And they only can think in terms of repeats and a loop. You know, oh, this is like this is like Nixon. This is like Nixon. It's almost like libs have a very hard time accepting the results of elections and just just letting it go. Just let it go. They won't. They come up with some narrative, some storyline that makes them think, oh, well, We don't have to let it go because it's not real or it didn't really happen or it's about to end before the next election even happens. Sure enough, that's not how this plays out. That's not how it works. But they think that it's a good idea to to bring John Dean out once again. This guy who I believe went to prison for what he did at Watergate. He was Nixon's counsel. Uh, And this is what he said on CNN, which is hashtag resistance central. This is what he said to CNN this morning, play 17. I'm clearly not a fact witness, but I hope I can give them some context and show them how strikingly like Watergate, what we're seeing now and as reported in the Mueller report is the fact that uh, uh, Nixon was hands on very early is just like Trump hands on very early. The firing of Comey was certainly not dissimilar from some of the actions that Nixon took. Nixon is just like Trump. That's all he has to say. And he gets on TV and he gets treated by all these these very uh, borderline IQ and 
highly unimpressive CNN anchors like this is this is the word of the almighty on all things. Imp- oh, we have John Dean today. Got to listen to everything this guy has to say. Well, I would like to give you uh, a, a little window into what this what this John Dean character is really all about. He is serving a very clear purpose here, which is tying the Bush. Uh, I'm sorry, tying the uh, Trump administration back to Nixon. Right? Nixon was impeached and resigned. I'm sorry, Nixon was not impeached. Pardon me. Nixon resigned, but would have been impeached, uh, would have been removed from office most likely. So he resigned in advance of this. And they want to create that storyline. That's what this is all about. That it's just like, but see, the issue with John Dean, and there are a lot of them, one of the issues with John Dean is that this is what he always does. He wrote a book in 2004, worse than Watergate, the secret presidency of George W. Bush, worse than Watergate. And this has now become a phrase that people use usually uh, in a kind of mock high dudgeon, worse than Watergate, this is, oh, it's worse than Watergate. Well, if the Bush administration was worse than Watergate, I guess this has to be worse than worse than Watergate. This fellow, Mr. Dean, he exists so that Democrats have someone they can point to that will be a, uh, a a little little time and space transport back to the era of big journalism's unbelievable power where they could bring down a presidency. And they don't really have quite the same power anymore. In fact, Trump is really a slap in the face to that power. Trump's mere existence as president is a constant reminder to the journo class that they ain't what they used to be. But they have John Dean to trot out here as though his testimony on this should matter at all to anyone. They could have any figure from the Nixon era, any author, or from any presidential era for that matter, come out and just answer questions about what they think is in the Mueller report or what they think about what's been published. Who the heck cares? Democrats are embarrassing on this. They want to get John Dean to testify. Where's the where are the calls for Mueller to testify? I'm telling you, folks, they want to let Mueller skate away without a whole lot of scrutiny and without any opposition questions. They want to let Mueller just go. Mueller did them the best solid he could with this report and his little his little weirdo press conference. He did everything he could for the Democrats. They want to send him off and not let the they don't want him to get comied. And getting Comey just means they don't want people to find out who this guy really is and what he's all about. Because if that happens, then guess what? His report will be seen through the prism of the partisan that he really is. The anti-Trumpster that we all know him to be. But that's right. They bring down the guy who wrote the worse than Watergate book about the, the Bush presidency. And, and I can't even tell you here. This is what... The the uh, the Amazon description of this John Dean book from the Bush era is the former counsel of President Nixon provides a stinging critique of the current Bush administration, its obsession with secrecy and its willingness to deceive the American people. Emphasizing the president's. This is what it says. Emphasis on image over substance, imperial governing and flawed decision making. Uh, OK. So he doesn't like Bush, but that makes it worse than Watergate. I mean, this 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 is a laughable phrase, right? This is preposterous. Worse than what? How? It's not, it has nothing to, Bush has nothing to do with Watergate. 
But, oh, it's worse than Watergate. Yeah, sure it is. Meanwhile, if you want to look at what's really going to be a problem. Oh, wait, no, wait, hold on. I'm not letting him get away with this. Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan had uh, a moment. I really like Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan had a moment with, uh, with John Dean. Did I play it, please? Did you give advice to Lanny Davis or Michael Cohen had, prior I, to Mr. Cohen's testimony to Congress? Yeah, I have known Lanny Davis for almost a couple decades, uh, and we have talked about it. And I did say, uh, as soon as you turn your testimony over, it will be picked apart. So you instructed Michael Cohen's lawyer to keep information from Republicans to obstruct the committee work that we were doing in the Oversight Committee just a few months ago? You, you told that to Michael Cohen's lawyer? Uh, I didn't quite phrase it that well, way, no. You know what? They took your advice. I'm sorry? They took your advice. Did they? Yeah. Mr. Mr. Cohen that. kept his testimony from us for as long as possible. But you know what else Mr. Cohen did that day? Lied. This is what concerns, I think, so many Americans about the work that's going on in this Congress, this 116. The first, the first announced witness of the 116th Congress was Michael Cohen, a guy who sits in prison today for lying to Congress. Today, Chairman Nadler brings in front of the Judiciary Committee a guy to talk about obstruction of justice who went to prison in 1974 for obstructing justice. At least they're going with experts now. <laughs> He's an expert in obstructing justice because that's what he did. Just like Michael Cohen is an expert in lying under oath because that's what he did. But you know what really gets the Democrats worried? Media is not covering this much, doesn't want to talk about it. But what keeps them up at night, I'm telling you, is the Barr report. The Inspector General, which has been delayed, folks, until I think July, which is a shame, but it has been delayed. But that Barr report... That has them worried. They know Barr is serious. They know Barr is talented. They know that there's the very real possibility that he will have answers finally about the Russia steel origin, Russia uh, investigation origins and the steel dossier. And this is what really worries them. Mark Meadows uh, touched on this. Mark Meadows is doing some great work on this. He says, look, the, the senior FBI folks had to know that the steel dossier was a joke. Play 14. Prior to that first FISA application, Peter Strzok, uh, Andy McCabe, and others at the FBI knew that Christopher Steele's dossier was not credible, and they did a rush to make sure that they could actually surveil him. That will come out because there's a cover-up that happened within certain realms at the FBI. A rush to surveil and a cover-up. That's the kind of information that I think we're going to see here. That's, that's what we are going to find out from this Inspector General report. Because the, the most dirty stuff will be what happened in the very beginning to get this investigation going. That's why they're lying about this whole Papadopoulos thing. There's no way that Papadopoulos was the origin point of the investigation. There's no way. It's just, it just it doesn't hold water. It doesn't hold together. It doesn't make any sense. There was other stuff going on here. There were partisans in this process. Who knows how far up the chain it goes over the DNC and the Hillary campaign. There were people involved in the Obama administration who had to know. And that's where you're going to have the really scary stuff for the Democrats. So, you know, they can put John Dean on the stand today and this whole dog and pony show. It's a waste of everybody's time. They're making themselves look like a bunch of clowns. We have some good and worthwhile testimony to look forward to, I believe. We have an inspector general report that's delayed, but still coming out. And it is true that the single most the single most dangerous man to the Democrats delusions in this country right now. It's not even Donald Trump. It's Attorney General Bill Barr.
We'll be right back. Very preliminary information. Uh, the fire department is on scene and uh, they're responding. Uh, but the preliminary information is that there was a helicopter that made a forced landing, emergency landing, uh, or landed on the roof of the building for one reason or another. Uh, there was a fire that uh, happened when the hel- helicopter hit the roof. People who were in the building said they felt the building shake. Uh, the fire department believes the fire is on, uh, under control. Uh, there may have been casualties involved in people in the helicopter. Do we know at this point how many were on that helicopter? We do not know. So there was this uh, helicopter crash earlier today that was getting a ton of media attention. And I, I, I think I think one person... I believe so far we think M- Mike. Am I right here? It's the pilot that died. Yes, that's uh, since then. It's there. We've confirmed that one died, and it was the pilot. It was the pilot was, and we don't think right now that there was anyone else on that on that helicopter. No, I haven't. No, we don't. Uh, you know, this is one of these things where uh, you, you notice how how a news cycle is generated from not necessarily what what is really going to have impact on the lives of the most people. But just what can capture, you know, attention and imagination very quickly, a helicopter crash of this kind, as soon as they've determined that it wasn't terrorism, which it seemed right away, that was the case. I mean, a helicopter would be a particularly poor choice of a vehicle for a a suicide operation because it carries very few people. And it would helicopters are fragile. Those of you who fly them know that they're not uh, not particularly sturdy or, or durable craft. Uh, and obviously today, one of them tragically uh, crashed on, on this building. By the way, the, I believe one of my family members works in the building that is right next to this building. So there's been quite a lot of to do from the, the streets around this in, in New York City, a lot of stuff going on. But we do have it in New York. Anytime there's an aerial incident of this kind, people's minds tend to go right to terrorism because of 9-11 and the impact that that had on our lives. Um, this, though, is is a reminder also of how the the old media maxim, if it if it bleeds, it leads, is very much the case. This was getting more attention, um, which I think also tells you a lot about how much impact the John Dean hearing was really having. This news story for much of the day was the number one cable news uh, item for many hours. And ultimately, we're talking about something that is is about as significant as a car crash where a person died. It's really not once you establish that it's not terrorism and that there was only one person involved. And it's very sad for for him and his and his family. And I'm not trying to downplay any of that at all. I'm just saying that this is effectively a, a car crash at the top of a building. I mean, this is one person dying in a crash of a mechanical failure. And there's been more or less flood the zone coverage of it for many, many hours today. And I think it's in part because of the mentality in New York that anytime there's a crash involving an aerial craft, everyone starts to think terrorism. That's true. But perhaps more to uh, our purposes here, a, a an incident like this was able to take all the focus off of what the Democrats, uh, what is a, a relatively minor uh, news story in the grand scheme of things, was able to take hours of attention away from the John the John Dean testimony. I wonder how much of that was ratings, old school news, uh, judgment driven, versus whether some networks realized that 
you know, it would be probably to the Democrats' benefit to have less people watch John Dean make, an, make a jackass of himself. Uh, why anyone should care what this guy from f- uh, an incident 40 years ago that very few people in America even really know much about, but beyond that, was a very different incident from what we're talking about today. Why that person uh, should be the focus of an inquiry on Capitol Hill is something the Democrats, I just don't think, have, have any real answer to. So it's probably for the best for them today that this turned into just a, a news story that was consuming all the different channels and, and getting all the attention and not John Dean making a fool of himself on the Hill. I will say, though, man, you know, I've ridden around. Mike, you ever been in a helicopter? I have not, and I don't plan to. I've been in a bunch of military <laughs> helicopters. Um, I've been in a few private helicopters. They're, you know, you're in a plane. You have this forward, uh, you know, you have, the, you have the wing speed and everything, and you just feel like you can maybe kind of get to some kind of a landing. Yeah. If, a hel- if things go bad in a helicopter, they go. I, people tell me that there's continuous rotation in the blades, but, yeah, yeah. things go bad in a helicopter. They go really bad. Yeah, I trust the military. I don't trust the people flying around New York City, that's for sure. Yeah, that's a different different thing. Yeah, it's one thing to get into a Blackhawk with like a you know a Night Stalker pilot or something. Yeah, it's another thing cool. to hop in with some guy who's like, "Yeah, we take tourists around the island, and yeah, it's all fine." And I can't hear you because I got the loud rotor going in the back. You know that always strikes me as yeah, it's okay. mayhem in New York, and there's a I mean, there's been way more crashes than normal here of over the last few years of helicopters. Yeah, yeah well. Regulations probably coming. By the way, you know, Bill de Blasio, I saw this today. He is uh, less popular in uh, New York than, wait, what was it? Was it Gillibrand or was it Cuomo? I think it was Gillibrand. But it's Gillibrand, yeah. I think, right, who's basically one in, in the very, very low end of the Democrat race. But I think de Blasio serves an important purpose in New York City, and that is that uh, Bill de Blasio shows you that you can be a lazy moron and run the largest city in the country, and the city will more or less be okay. I mean, you'll do things that hurt the city, but it'll continue to run as is because it's such a big machine and been around for so long that even somebody as lazy and dumb as Bill de Blasio is not able to completely and utterly make it go kaput all at once. So that's good news. That's a little bit of upbeatness for the day. And, uh, team, we've got more coming up. Stay with me. See the president of the United States in prison. It's an extraordinary statement from the Speaker of the House. Do you agree with her? Is that how you see it? Do you want to see the president in prison instead of impeaching him? That she wants to see President Trump in prison. Look, I don't have any difficulty with those words. Do you think President Trump committed crimes that could be prosecuted? He did. No one is above the law. And that includes President Trump. If it determines that we lead to impeachment or if he ends up in jail, so be it. Now, Bob wonder, Mueller almost said that he should be in jail. If you become president in 2020, would you want your Justice Department to pursue charges against President Trump? Well, let me press you, uh, Congressman. Do you want to see the president of the United States in jail? More than anything else, um, Wolf, look, the the lizard brain that I have says uh, I hope bad things happen to this man because he has been so destructive. They want him in prison, folks. The libs, whether this is just their little way of uh, being able to sleep at night and not cry too much, a way to keep the snowflakes from melting entirely, they tell themselves that there is still a realistic prospect of President Trump going to prison. They want this president in jail. In jail for what? Well, it depends who you ask. 
They'll all say obstruction, and then I always point out which, which count of obstruction, or, or rather, which act of obstruction. They don't seem as clear on that. Are they really going to settle on the Don McGahn thing? That wouldn't go anywhere. They wouldn't win that case. So they'd rather just refer to the generic, oh, Trump is a criminal, he's a bad guy, he's terrible. They want, they want him in prison. And with no trace of irony, hello, you know who's coming to weigh in on this issue. None other than Hillary Clinton herself decides it's time to jump in on this issue. And as though, as though she has any credibility whatsoever, as though anyone really needs to hear what Hillary, I don't know what C means in that paragraph, even though I'm Secretary of State and it clearly means confidential, which is classified. That Hillary Clinton still thinks the public needs to hear from her. She, she is so deeply bitter still about losing the presidency to Trump. I mean, this is not something that she will ever forgive or forget. She's never going to get past it. I think Hillary Clinton, in her mind, probably thinks the last 30 years of her existence, maybe even all 60-some-odd years of her existence in, in their totality, were about becoming president, and that's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And she now has to deal with that. She has to wake up every day and know Hillary Clinton is never going to be the president of the United States. I don't know if she can really do that. I don't know if she can process it. And so what does she do? She goes out there and shares her, her opinion on things uh, for which we do, not, we do not need her input. Her input is not helpful. It is not needed. Play clip 15. I don't want to be a downer, but I will say this. If you take the time to read the Mueller report, actually read it, which all of us in this auditorium are more than capable of doing, you come to two inescapable conclusions. The first is that Russia conducted a sweeping and systemic interference in our election. The second is that obstruction of justice occurred. Now, you cannot read the report, chapter and verse, fact after fact, without reaching those conclusions. And yet, Mueller didn't reach those conclusions. He chose not to conclude. So as to hand off to the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives and hand off to the anti-Trump media apparatus an issue that they could just keep alive forever. They could use for political purposes. Maybe they impeach, maybe they don't, but it'll always be the big what if. By, by abandoning prosecutorial ethics, by abandoning his duty at the DOJ, what Mueller did is leave open a wound on the Trump administration that will never really heal. And that was the purpose all along inescapable conclusion that obstruction of justice can, uh, occurred. That, that, is not, that is not an inescapable conclusion. In fact, I think it's a very, very weak, and I've spoken to federal prosecutors, current and former, about this. I've spoken to people that this is all that they did. Look at issues like this. Look at cases like this. And they said that you, you might be able to bring an obstruction charge, but you would lose. And because federal prosecutors don't bring charges that, that they're likely to lose, uh, likely to lose on, they would never bring an obstruction of justice charge against against President Trump. 
But Mueller couldn't say that because then that would be case closed. So what does he do? He says, well, we're not going to we're going to decide to not decide. One of the truly bizarre and, and just hacky political things to do. And a, a disgrace. I really do believe that Mueller will be thought of the same way that Comey is thought of now. Remember, we were told that Comey was the last honest man and, oh, he's so great. And how could anyone da- doubt the greatness of James Comey? Turns out that that was all just PR and spin. And Comey is not some amazing hero for all time. And just the same is true with Mueller. He's not some amazing hero for all time either. He's a guy who has a very particular view of how things should play out in this case, in this instance, and was willing to stack the deck, bend some rules, and be a partisan. And that's what happened. Just uh, We're going to talk about immigration in some detail, but I wanted to uh, just bring up here for a moment because the debate over abortion continues on very much in the public square now and you're seeing more on this issue than you usually do because of the state you know some states are trying to protect life and some states are saying we value life not at all i mean democrat states are saying that life has the life of a fetus has, has no value it's of no consideration and it's appalling and it's really it's unsettling just as a human being to see this going on but some of the feminists who are coming out now to to take on this issue are whether recognizing it as such or not finally speaking honestly on this issue this woman sophie lewis i've never even heard of her before but she came out to speak about what the truth of abortion is from a left-wing mind and here i'll let her say it herself play 13. we tend to say um that abortion is indeed very bad but or we say um luckily it's not killing. Luckily, it's just a healthcare right. Abortion is, in my opinion, um, and I recognize how controversial this is, um, a form of killing. It is a, a form of um, killing that uh, we need to be able to defend. Um, I am not interested in where a human life starts to um, exist. Now, it's a horrific thing to say, but at least she understands that the pro-life position is about defending life. It's not about restricting women's rights. It's not about being anti-women. It's about there's a baby. It's about the life of a little baby. And she just comes out and says it. Abortion is a form of killing, but it's just killing that we should be in favor of. That's the, that is the real position. All this other stuff is just talking around it. and find, it's, it's, This is a form of killing, and the pro the pro choice or pro abortion position, if it was going to be based in in anything that's coherent, would be it's killing, but we have to allow this killing for the following reasons. Now, maybe they would lose that argument. They should lose that argument. That's why they won't do it. But that's that's the argument as it as it from a rational perspective, from an honest perspective, should be should be presented. Uh, you'll see more of that, though. Some of the left, some of the feminists slipping up and telling us what's really true, which they usually don't want to do. Uh, immigration, Trump, a deal, Mexico. What could be done to stop the massive migrant flow? That is where we're going next. That is what we're going to get into. Um, there is a lot of time before the Iowa caucus. Um, we've never been guided by a poll before. Um, if you were to look at the Texas Senate race uh, the first couple of months after we were in. Um, no poll was going to say that we were going to win that. 
Yeah, but like, here's the problem, Beto. You didn't win the Texas Senate race, so the fact that no poll said that meant that polls were like totally right. <laughs> oh man, Beto. Uh, I was kind of hoping he was going to be around longer, folks. I, I don't think he's going to be in this race all that long. I think he's going to get he's going to get tossed. Sure enough, he's going to get uh, going to get the boot. I don't know if he's going to last longer than Tim Ryan or Hickenlooper or some of these other guys, but maybe he's got more name more name recognition. But isn't you know they they skip past this part of it? What what a, an empty suit and really kind of a phony. And you had all this national media attention on him and everything that they could throw at him to uh, to prop him up to be able to be a realistic contender against Ted Cruz. And I just say, this is who they put up against Ted Cruz? This was their answer to Ted Cruz in Texas? And we were told that this race was going to be, oh, so, so close. It was closer than it should have been, I, I will admit that. But they also put... an unbelievable amount of money and media attention and, and they went to the mat for this guy. They did everything they could. And now the Democrats have to really look at him and say, well, do we want this to be our guy? They go, oh gosh, what exactly does, what exactly does he bring to the table other than an inability to understand and read polls from what we can gather? It's a, it's a remarkable state of affairs with this Democrat field right now. Joe Biden slipping in the polls. I knew it would happen. I'm, I'm going to try to not be that guy. And I know you'll hold me to account for this. I'm going to try to not be that guy that says, like, I knew it. I called it. You know, I said it. But in this case with Biden, he's just not a good candidate, folks. He's just not compelling. He's not that smart. He's not exciting. Why Joe Biden? The answer that the campaign tells you one way or another is why not? He could kind of do this. He's he's sort of good enough to make this happen. Yeah, let's go with Joe Biden, because why not? That doesn't get people out of their seats. That does not get people excited to vote for someone. And it's going to be a problem for him in the primary, because eventually they're going to realize, hold on a second, Democrats are going to wake up and say, did we learn our lesson from 2016 at all? Because the lesson of 2016 really was, Going with the, quote, electable candidate, not a good idea. You've got to go with somebody who matches up against the other person that they're supposed to defeat. You can't just go with someone that you have this concept unsupported by anything in particular of electability. You know, Jeb was electable until he wasn't. Please clap. You know, Hillary was electable twice until she wasn't. Joe Biden's a default candidate. He's a we don't have anybody, so let's just let's just you know pull Biden out of the freezer and you know put you know let the let the chips fall where they may. Not that Biden's really in the freezer. You know what I mean? You know, just dust just dust Biden off, pull him off the shelf. He's the guy that'll get it done. Of course, he's not the guy that'll get it done. Why would anyone vote for this guy? At least, at least Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren have some ideas. I think they're terrible ideas, but they are ideas. Biden, Biden's ideas. What should I say right now? He reminds me of one of these politicians you see made fun of in different TV shows and movies, where his staff just tells him what to say, like they whispered into his ear, and he just says it. This is Biden. This guy's been wrong on every major foreign policy issue for the last forty years. He's on the wrong side of every major foreign policy issue. Thought that he had this brilliant plan to fix Iraq. That would have just cut the country up into three pieces and 
That sounds great. Oh yeah, that'll that'll work. Let's just let's just do this like Yugoslavia. Except, do you want to go through a massive civil war? Because where you draw those dividing lines in a country like Iraq mean everything. Mean everything for resource control, populations that are inside or outside those lines. It's a big deal. Producer Mike is pointing out here that nine Democrats right now are at zero percent in Iowa. It really wouldn't be crazy for me to be like, you know what? I'm going to run. I'm going to get in the mix. That's right. Buck Sexton running on the Democrat ticket. Hey, I don't share any of their beliefs, and I make fun of them all the time. I think that they're nuts. But at this point, I'd probably have a better chance than some of the Democrat candidates. I really mean that. I think it's, well, okay, maybe I don't mean that. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with the exaggeration went a little far there. But still, I could get it. I, I'll tell you this. I could get 0%. I could get zero votes. I could do that. I could make that happen for you. There's also a seven at 1%. So if you didn't get zero, you could probably get 1% too. Producer Mike, I think with what we could cook <laughs> up here in the hub, my friend, I think we could get me to 1%, man. You know, 1%. Amen. People just vote for me because of my name. They'd be like, that guy's name is so weird. We got to vote for him. Hey, man. Freedom Hut headquarters, we could do anything. That's right, dude. Our only, our, our only limit is, is the limit of our dreams, Producer Mike. That's right. Uh, that's right. Immigration, folks, I told you last week that uh, this was going to happen, that if, if, if Trump got a deal, the media was going to completely rewrite history. And, oh, no, well, it's just um, one thing that was kind of fun, though. And this was a surprise, but uh, but Donna Bash over at CNN. I like that because I'm one of the only people that knows how to pronounce her name. It's spelled Dana, but she likes to be called Donna. Donna Bash over at CNN has... Uh, had the the temerity, uh, the the gall to call out Bernie Sanders in the past for saying that the well for the way that he described the border crisis. Listen to this, play seven. You tweeted this week that President Trump's tariffs were a quote fake border crisis in quotation marks, but immigration officials have arrested or encountered more than one hundred forty four thousand migrants at the southern border in May, the highest monthly total in 13 years. Border facilities are dangerously overcrowded. Migrants are actually standing on toilets to get space to breathe. How is that not a crisis? What we need to do, I mean, what Trump has been doing, and I think the, what the meaning of that tweet is about, is that Trump has been demonizing undocumented people in this country, and that's part of his strategy. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna ignore everything that I that I said in the tweet and pretend that I tweeted something else and talk about Trump demonizing undocumented people and you know gonna pretend that I wasn't lying and lying lying pants on fire for saying there was no border crisis the border crisis was fake it's clearly not fake it's a dumb thing for me to tweet a dumb thing a dumb thing for me to say and yet here I am jumping down Trump's throat saying he's demonizing undocumented people undocumented well you know that's undocumented is is like people that refer to the patriarchy and intersectionality uh you you tell me everything i need to know about your politics the moment you use the word undocumented which is a made-up word does not appear in the legal code is not the proper designation for what these people are they are illegal it's in the federal law they're called illegal aliens that is what they describe their status as more on this coming up 
I spoke with the president of Mexico. I get along with him very well, and we made this deal. But this is very, this is something the U.S. has been trying to get for over 20 years with Mexico. They've never been able to do it. As soon as I put tariffs on the table, it was, it was done. It took two days. We purposely said we wouldn't mention it for a little while because it has to be brought by their legislative body. It's got to be taken to a vote. It's another very powerful tool. In addition to the very powerful tools we got, we had none of these tools, or virtually none, or they were just being talked about. They've been talked about for 20 years with Mexico. The New York Times wrote a story like I already made the deal. It's nonsense. We talked about it for months and months and months, and they wouldn't get there. And we just said, hey, look, if you don't get there, we're just going to have to charge you hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, taxes. And we would have been just fine. So Trump got a deal, folks. According to Trump, that's what has happened here. He's got a deal with Mexico. And so the tariffs did not go into effect today. But sure enough, do you think, do you think that the liberals are saying, wow, Trump was, uh, Trump was right. Trump managed to do something here that we didn't think he'd be able to do. No, of course not. I mean, I told you this. I predicted this last week. As you know. I said, just wait. He might actually get this done. And when he does, the libs will act like, oh, no, this was, it was never the thing we said it was. It was something, it was something else. There was some other reason that they had to talk about this. There was some other reason why this was a front page news story or the, 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 the way this would shake out. Forget what they said then. Now they're telling you the truth. Here's the Wall Street Journal reporting this. Mexico's border pact with the U.S. bought time on Trump's asylum demand. As part of a deal to avert tariffs, Mexico agreed to revisit U.S. demands for a radical haul of the immigration system if its proposed measures to curb immigration don't work, putting it under intense pressure to stem the tide of Central Americans arriving at the U.S. A U.S.-Mexico border. President Trump on Monday wrote on Twitter the two countries had fully signed and documented another very important part of the immigration security deal with Mexico, that would require a vote by Mexican lawmakers. Uh, that was an apparent reference to a safe third country designation that would require migrants fleeing their homelands to pass through Mexico to seek asylum there. We do not anticipate a problem with the vote, but if for any reason the approval is not forthcoming, tariffs will be reinstated. Folks, this is exactly what Trump was trying to get here. This is what, this is what Trump was looking for with the tariff threat against Mexico. And now here we are being told that this is moving the football down the field. Not a done deal. It's not all solved. It's not all fine. There still are plenty of ways this could go, but Trump is prepared for that. I really do think that what you see is that there are a lot of people in D.C., certainly a lot of journalists and a lot of people in the D.C. political class who don't really understand negotiation. I think, uh, you know, in D.C., you have so many different members of Congress who are just engaged in uh, covering their own butts. And they're so focused with putting their names on things that won't come back to bite them and making sure that they won't be held accountable for tough votes. That in, in a difficult negotiation, how many of them you think really know what they're doing? I think the answer is very, very few. Um, and I think that when Trump takes the position of, all right, we're going to do this because we want a change in behavior from Mexico. What should happen in response to that 
is a lot of people say, okay, well, let's let's judge this by the results. But what does happen in response to that instead is you have a whole bunch of people in the journalist class who judge this thing before it's even gotten going, before we know what the results are. And that's why I said you watch and see if, if he gets Mexico to change behavior, they're going to say, well, it was nothing. Last week it was he's crazy for thinking Mexico will do anything as a result of these tariffs. Why would Mexico be crazy? Why is that a crazy thought? It's a very straightforward thing. Mexico could do a lot more, and I've spoken to people in Border Patrol about this. I've been speaking to people for the last week about what what's realistic for the Mexican government to do to meet the threshold of demands here from the Trump administration. It's really not that hard. They can stop these people. Mexico has its own immigration laws, its own you know, territorial control. They don't have to let anybody in from Guatemala who wants to come in from Guatemala. They don't have to take anybody from Honduras who wants to come in from Honduras. And they should have a third safe country agreement where if someone comes from Central America and they want to apply uh, for asylum in the United States, it's really actually, if we're going to be technical, I believe it's applying to be a refugee in the United States because asylum is what you apply for inside the United States when you're here. You get here, you apply for asylum. A refugee is somebody who's elsewhere who wants that status, which is the status is very similar to an asylum refugee, but wants that in the United States. But a third safe country agreement means that now you don't get to come in and exploit the system and get led into the interior of the United States, never to be seen again. Now you stay in Mexico. Now you apply and you show up. You don't get to establish all these different ties in the United States. You don't get to you know, develop these roots that then, oh my gosh, it'd be so inhumane to take people away from. Look what they've done in this community. Look at all their son is a scholar at the school, blah, blah, all this stuff you're going to hear, all of that. This deals with that problem. And so now there's not some big end run on the immigration system. Now the immigration system can function much more along the lines that we would, would hope it would function. Right? We now can do the things that we want it to do. But... The libs hate this, of course, because one, you get Trump coming up with a, if not a solution, at least a possible solution. I mean, taking some action here that might be worthwhile. And uh, what do the libs want to talk about? Well, one, you get Cory Booker, who is just desperate for it. He's like the candidate that's the most desperate for attention, because I think Cory Booker can't believe that he's not higher up in the polls than he is. Play clip eight. You hear the president talk. I mean, he uses the language. This is why knowing history is so important. He uses language like a political party of our past called the Know Nothings. Mm -hmm. Same language, trying to then stop Irish and Italian immigrants, trying to make us afraid of of people coming from the southern border with brown skin. But but you know how many deaths have happened in terrorism since 9-11 and where that has come from? As much as he wants to make us afraid of, of, of people trying to come here escaping terror, not remembering like when we turned away other immigrants trying to escape terror, there was a, a ship that came here during World War II with a bunch of folks trying to escape the Holocaust and we turned it around where they got killed in the Holocaust. With the shame of that, we you think we would learn our lesson about people coming here to seek asylum, escaping terror. Escaping terror, that's what he's saying. Is, is El Salvador in a state of terror right now? Are there mass exterminations going on in El Salvador that I'm not aware of? Is Honduras in a state of terror right now? If that were the case, why don't these people just say, oh my gosh, we're in Mexico now, now we're safe, we're okay? No, no, no. And Cory Booker's not this stupid. He's just this much of a demagogue. 
He is a cynical, self-loving, self-involved politician who will say whatever he has to say to get claps from the left. Clearly, there's no real comparison between Central America as a place from which refugees are departing from the United States and people fleeing the Holocaust in the Second World War. But he'll say that. It's emotional. It gets, you know, it gets the libs all, all energized and aggravated. And oh my gosh, you know, it's like, it's really a slap in the face to people that are true refugees. I mean, what, what you have going on at the border, and I know this because I've been down there a couple of times, you have people lying about what they're fleeing. Nobody on that ship fleeing Europe was lying. Okay, they knew that they faced certain death back home. But these Central Americans lying about their age, lying about their family status, lying about why they're coming. Oh, I'm scared of the gangs. No, you just want American welfare programs and better job prospects. Very different. Are you willing to give President Trump any credit for avoiding tariffs and for striking this deal with Mexico? Uh, for creating a crisis, which he then sort of partially at the last minute solved while still mis misrepresenting. Is that a no? That's a no. Yeah, I think the president has completely overblown what he purports to have achieved. These are agreements that Mexico had already made in some cases months ago. They might have accelerated the timetable, uh, but, but by and large, the president achieved nothing except to jeopardize the most important trading relationship that the United States of America has. There are six million jobs in this country that depend on U.S.-Mexico trade. Who called it, folks? I went into detail. You remember this. I told you last week, I said, if Trump gets Mexican action because of the tariffs, if the Mexican government gives in on this one and is, is willing to finally do something in response to the tariffs, which would mean that Trump's strategy here has borne fruit or is bearing fruit, that it will have won at some level, that he will have gotten what he sought out or what he sought to get. And the media would give him no credit for it whatsoever. It's it's amazing, isn't it, how predictable they are. I, I don't sit here and tell you that I'm Nostradamus, although we all know that I kind of am. Libs last week were saying Trump doesn't understand tariffs. He'll never get Mexico to take action on immigration. This is all a stunt. Oh, over the weekend, turns out Mexico agrees to some stuff in a deal. And then Libs this week, Mexico taking action isn't a win for Trump because blah, 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 nonsense, nonsense, talking points. Even Beto there, even Beto had to say it. Well, maybe he did get the acceleration, the acceleration of action here. And so if, let, let's just say that the, the, the doubters and the haters, as the Trumpster would say, uh, let's say they're correct. Um, let's say that uh, that this is not necessarily new stuff that Mexico has agreed to. Well, if it's not new, but they haven't done it yet, and now they're going to do it, and they have agreed to accelerate the speed with which they will do it, that is meaningful. You know, if I tell, if I agree to build your house six months ago, and now finally you say, "Look, you either build my house starting today, or I'm going to sue you." And then I say, okay, okay, I'm going to start building a house tomorrow. Assuming I build the house tomorrow, you will have gotten your way. You will have won in that negotiation. 
that I haven't built the house for six months, and then all of a sudden I start building a house for six. Doesn't mean well you agreed to it then, so this doesn't mean anything. No, clearly the lawsuit threat in that in that case motivated me to take action, just like Trump threatening Mexico on this issue. And that's why Kevin McAleen and over at DHS is like, look, people, come on, stop with this stuff. Where how you know where anything that Trump does is just can't be good because Trump did it. This is ridiculous. Play six. The president tweeted out that the tariff has been suspended. And Secretary Mnuchin pointed out that there's there's a mechanism to make sure that they re, they do what they promised to do, that there's an actual result, that we see a vast reduction uh, in those numbers. People can disagree with the tactics. Mexico came to the table with real proposals. We have an agreement that if they implement, will be effective. The president put a charge in this whole dialogue with Mexico, with, with the tariff threat, brought them to the table. This is the first time we've heard anything like this kind of number of law enforcement being deployed in Mexico to address migration 6,000 National Guard sent to the Guatemalan border to help with the immigration issue that's happening now further agreements that I'm sure we'll hear more details about in the days ahead and here's all that this really took Trump recognizing that we have leverage we have leverage vis-a-vis Mexico We don't just have to sit here and let the Mexican government do whatever they want to do, get away with whatever they want to get away with. We, the American people, the American government, are in a position to push them in the right direction. That's what's going on. That is what we are doing. And yet the libs won't budge on this. Hate it, hate it, hate it. No interest whatsoever in saying, wow, it looks like Trump might have been right on this because If he was right on this short-term tariff threat, maybe tariffs can be a tool of policy after all. Maybe tariffs, which China has been using to great effect for a long time, and which originally funded the American government in this country, often lost. People forget this part of our history. How did the federal government fund itself until well into uh, the American experiment? I can't even tell you what the year was. Obviously, we didn't have the income tax until the 20th century, but it's really tariffs. That funded the uh, the fund of the federal government for a long time, so that seems to get lost. That seems to get thrown by the ways. And now I'm not saying go tariff crazy and tariffs going to solve everything, but they're acting like Trump has no idea what he's doing. Doesn't make any sense. It's all ridiculous. And you know now now we finally can look at this and say, well, hold on a second. Uh, if if the president manages to get action from the Mexican government on this, if he can stem this border crisis. That would certainly be worthwhile. Well, one, one more thing I want to put in the mix here is, uh, as we're talking about the border, California, California, is is it always going to be able, you can always say that and people know you're talking about the governor, right? Most famous governor. That guy, Gavin Newsom, is now the governor of California, which, wow, that guy. Uh, California now is in the process, I don't think it's officially passed yet, uh, but they're poised, that's the word they always use when something's about to happen, poised to give illegal immigrants free health care. This is the Democrat state legislature, of course, California, has an agreement in place to allow low-income individuals who are between the age of 19 and 25 who are in America illegally, so they are illegal aliens, to be able to get Medi-Cal, which is the state of California's Medicaid program. So it's a state 
health care welfare program. And they're going to start it real small, at least comparatively to what it could be for the rest of the state. 90,000 people are going to be under this measure. It's not that much. California's got a population of over 30 million. The $213 billion budget deal this is a part of. And the estimated cost of this, who wants to guess if the estimated cost is going to be a fraction of what the real cost is? But the estimated cost of this is about $100 million a year. $100 million a year. Now, that's not nothing for a state budget. $100 million is a lot of money. $100 million anywhere is a lot of money. But they're just throwing this in there. This is a welfare program. This is just the taxpayers in California are going to be funding this. And you know how they're going to do it? They're using money raised from the individual mandate that is now no longer the, the no longer the uh, law at the federal level because the Trump administration. Well, now California's going to say, if you don't have insurance and you fall into a certain income threshold, you're going to pay a penalty to the state of California, and that money is going to go to give other people health care. It's just redistribution of wealth, folks. But redistribution of wealth, not even to our fellow Americans, to illegals. Does anyone think that this program is going to stop at nine, at people 19 to 25? Of course not. It's going to go well beyond that. You're going to have the expansion of this become a major political issue. Gavin Newsom knows that the Latino community, the many, many illegals, and the many, many millions of people who are related to sons and daughters of, etc., illegals, they will see this and they will say, okay, well, if, it, if you can do it for this age group, you should do it for another age group and another age group. And they're going to try to build their way up to a statewide Medicare for Medicaid for all illegals program. Uh, this is just taking your money and giving it to people that are breaking the law, folks. That's what this is, at least in California. That is what they will be doing. And this is where the, the country is heading right now. If Democrats are in charge, they're going to want to open up Obamacare to all illegals. Hillary Clinton already said so in her 2016 campaign. California is just the canary in the coal mine. The Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh of, of Jewish people, those were only designated and charged as hate crimes, not domestic terrorist incidents. Uh, Mr. McGarity, why did the FBI not believe that these incidents were domestic terrorist incidents? That's not correct. I don't know who told you that we didn't, but we certainly had cases open on them mm -hmm. uh, in both those cases. And, and I wasn't here for the Dylan Roof case, but it's certainly in, in our own Department of Justice Civil Rights uh, about three, four weeks ago. And their testimony mm -hmm. actually stated that it was a domestic terrorism event mm -hmm. charged through the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice for a hate crime. So you are disputing that the AME, you're saying that AME was charged with domestic terrorism, Dylan Roof. So you're using the word charge. So as I said before, there's no domestic terrorism charge like 18 U.S.C. 2339 mm -hmm. A, B, C, D for a foreign terrorist organization. But the actual charge, was it was the actual charge domestic terrorism? You're not going to find an actual charge of domestic terrorism out there. AOC, who is technically a lawmaker, has a lot of problem, a lot of problems uh, understanding the law. And, and what laws do and what they what they don't do. But let me bring you into what's going on here. That was Ms. Ocasio-Cortez putting on her most serious, serious face, looking very serious, the glasses on, very studious looking, uh, talking to uh, the FBI uh, Assistant Director of Counterterrorism, Michael McGarity. 
And she's making this point that you'll hear leftists make. We're just talking about extremism on YouTube and right-wing radicalization on YouTube, which is a, the way that the Times did it. They're just trying to smear a bunch of people, create an excuse to have the left dominate YouTube and have their point of view uh, turn YouTube into a, a straight-up partisan megaphone, uh, which would also mean YouTube is a publisher, which comes with an additional set of rules and stuff that, you know, they need to start thinking a bit more about if that's the way they're going to be. There's some downside to that for them. But AOC is pushing on this because here's what the left wants the narrative to be, especially uh, in the Trump era and going into Trump's reelection, that the real threat, they always say this, the real terrorism threat is right wing white nationalist extremists here. Um, as As though we're really concerned about mass plots by right-wing white nationalists to bring down you know the 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 freedom tower to bring down planes out of the sky no i i worked in the largest city police department counterterrorism unit in the country there were that we had white we had white nationalist neo-nazi uh people uh you know assigned to that account we had anarchist terrorists. We had people that covered all this stuff. They were really bored. The jihadist terrorist people were the ones that had stuff to do. And the fact that there is a specific statute for foreign terrorist organizations and not for someone who is engaged in, you know, if someone hates people because of their skin color, that is a hate crime. And if they take action on that where they kill people, then they're charged with a hate crime. They're going to go to prison forever or get the death penalty. Why does it matter to AOC so much what the what the specific charge is when you're already talking about something that's a death penalty case? Oh, that's right, because the left really believes this narrative that the real terrorism threat comes from the white American who lives next door. That's what the left believes. They don't want to get into the numbers and look at terrorism percentage of the population in America that is Muslim, which is about one percent and percentage of the population that is white, which is somewhere in the 65 percent range. And then look at, okay, you're comparing the 1% of America to 65% of America, and they're close in terms of all-in casualty, all casualties. What does that tell you? AOC has no idea, doesn't know anything about that. They call it the making of a YouTube radical. A rather long piece in the New York Times magazine that profiles a, a young man named Caleb Kane and and Caleb Kane talks about his uh, very disturbing period in his life when he spent time watching videos of right wing YouTube stars and how he felt like this was a brainwashing uh, that that was uh, engaged in. He was a college dropout, they said, looking for direction. So he turned to YouTube and this. Oh, you can just feel the the terror and the fear of all the left-wingers that the idea of a college kid, or college dropout in this case, who wants to expose himself to other very popular, and in some cases really quite mainstream and, and well-established and well-credentialed individuals, but they're all thrown into this right-wing soup together. You know, this, is, this is one of the favorite tactics of the left now. Um, because they they don't want there to be alternative voices. They do not want digital platforms to be free, fair, and open. They're so used to the, the media dominance that they've had in the past. They're so used to what they've achieved 
on uh, college campuses and in the faculty lounge, and then in Hollywood and in the news media, where the country is roughly 50-50 Republican-Democrat. Meanwhile, journalists are 90% libs. Hollywood is probably 99% libs. College professors are, you know, overwhelmingly, I won't give you a percentage because I don't know off the top of my head, but overwhelmingly libs. I mean, there were more self-identified Marxists at my alma mater than there were open Republicans, okay? So they really insist on having this uh, ideological advantage. Now, they would just say that it's because they're right. Well, if it's because they're right, why does half the country disagree with them? I mean, it's, it's such a facile and unserious explanation for their dominance. The reason they're dominant in this way is because they emotionally and psychologically need to feel like their opinion is the only opinion. They're not capable, they're not equipped to deal with the arguments of the other side. And therefore, they also feel very comfortable using whatever tools of coercion they have at any given time to shut down those alternative voices. Essentially, the left can't handle real debate. The left can't handle opposing voices. And this is why they don't react with engagement. They react with hatred and shut it down, shut it down. This is what they always want to do. Now, in this New York Times piece, they they put all these different figures together on the right, everyone from Jordan Peterson to Crowder to Shapiro to uh, Stefan Malino. I, I, you know, I don't know him. Uh, Milo, Lauren Southern, uh, you know, who is, uh, I think, no longer even doing media. Paul Joseph Watson, who was kind of a funny little British accent. They put all these people in the same in the same boat as though being right of center and being on YouTube means that you're you're basically a neo-Nazi. I mean, they're not saying they're neo-Nazis, but they're basically putting them in the same category as like Stormfront and white nationalists. And and, and they walk through this whole uh, this whole process in this New York Times piece, which is written. I mean, it's a laughably partisan, dishonest left wing hit piece, which you would expect because it's the New York Times. It's a, it's a rag. It's a joke. Uh, but they, they have these quotes from this guy, this one guy who's supposed to be representative of this experience. Why? I, nobody really seems to know. They just picked this guy. Uh, I fell down the alt-right rabbit hole, he said in a video that he posted. Um, so I guess he posted this video on YouTube where he said that he was a recovering alt-right video addict or something from YouTube. And now he's uh, trying to make amends for that by telling the New York Times that he's learned all these terrible things. You know, I, I found it fascinating when you when you look at what uh, what some of the things are that are discussed in these videos. I mean, there are issues that are going to be inherently very uh, controversial and and they're going to be contentious. But that doesn't mean that they're they're Ill- illegitimate areas of serious discourse and discussion. Here's the near here's this Times piece wrote that Mr. Kane recently swore off the alt-right nearly five years after discovering it and has become a vocal critic of the movement. He is scarred by his experience of being radicalized by what he calls a decentralized cult of far-right YouTube personalities who convinced him that Western civilization was under threat from Muslim immigrants and cultural Marxists. Okay, is wait, let's just start with that one. Is Western civilization under threat from cultural Marxists? Yeah. I think that's fair to say. I think cultural Marxists are kicking at the load-bearing walls of civil of Western civilization. 
Is mass Muslim immigration dramatically changing societies in Europe? And could it dramatically change this country, too, if, if it were at a similar level to what we've seen in Europe? It's, it's, a, it's a fair question, isn't it? A lot of Europeans certainly think so. Uh, what else is in here? Uh, innate IQ differences explained racial disparities. Well, that takes us back to The Bell Curve, the book written by Charles Murray. And people don't really read the book. They just hear that line, then they want to shout and scream. And if anyone really understands what is contained, I've read The Bell Curve. When, when you read The Bell Curve, you know, it, it's it's not this... There's one chapter that deals with, with racial disparities in IQ based on the, the aggregate numbers that they have pulled together over a period of many decades. The differences are small, and the differences are only meaningful, according to Charles Murray, when spread out over a vast population of a whole lot of people. But one thing that anybody who wants to use that kind of information for racist or racial purposes has to grapple with, and, and generally the racist can't, is that the whole point of what the bell curve shows is that there are people of all races with 140 IQs. There are people of all races with IQs in the 90s, right? I mean, there are, you know, it doesn't matter what your skin color is, you can be at the absolute top of cognitive ability or you can be very, very low in the cognitive ability scale. So that's what the science that Murray was talking about says, and therefore to judge somebody based on their skin color is to make a, is to make a judgment for which there is for, for which the data does not support. Because you just don't know. Are you talking to somebody from uh, are you talking to somebody from the Aleutian Islands with a 140 IQ or with a 90 IQ? Could be either. You don't know. And does it really matter when people interacted with each other to find out, well, there's a, you know, a standard deviation, more geniuses in this group when you extrapolate it out into the millions. No, but see, but that's really what Murray's book talked about. Instead, it's just, oh, rate, uh, disparities in outcomes are all about race. IQ is a racist tool, et cetera, et cetera. But see, this is these are interesting areas of conversation. You can't have these discussions. I mean, go back and listen to Ezra Klein talking to Sam Harris, a neuroscientist. Ezra Klein is a little nerd that pretends to know a lot about the economy and is really just a Marxist who thinks that the Constitution is really, really old, man. Uh, but Klein sits down and is just smarmy and nasty to Sam Harris talking about the issue of race and IQ when Sam Harris is a, is a lib and a neuroscientist. And he's trying to have a serious discussion about it. But Ezra Klein takes a position of, well, you're saying things that hurt the social justice fabric, so you must be destroyed. That's really all that he has. Oh, and then the last one on this list is feminism is a dangerous ideology. I think that's true. So it's funny to me because I sit here. I mean, I think feminism leads a lot of women to being miserable, to being deeply unhappy, to making poor life choices. Uh, I sit here and I think I don't I would never be described by anybody who's not a liar or, or an idiot as being alt-right. But I find some of these topics that they're that are so controversial in this radicalization of some of, of somebody on YouTube, I find these to be topics that I would want to talk about on this show and that I do talk about on this show and that I do think are worthy of exploration and understanding and applying knowledge and, and insight and whatever data we have to these to get a better understanding of what's true and what's not. But you can't have these discussions at the mainstream media networks. You can't. You can't have them in the pages of the so-called leading newspapers and magazines or whatever's left of magazines. 
And so, yes, people do turn to YouTube for it. Does that mean that there are true racist, uh, far right, you know, neo-Nazi morons on YouTube? Of course there are. But they're on the Internet and they always have been and they're in society and they always will be. They're a fringe. They're reviled. They're not taken seriously or, or in any way treated with warmth by the vast, vast, vast majority of people on the right. In fact, I think many of us gladly and, and uh, make, make not just a habit, but, but take a particular pride in trashing the far right as people that just make the lives of everybody who are trying to push for a, a conservatism to be as open and widespread and widely adopted an ideology as possible you know, having neo-Nazis say, yeah, you know, we're, we're on the right. It goes, ugh, no, we, we don't want them on the right. We don't want them anywhere. We don't want their ideas anywhere near us. But they put all this in this New York Times piece, they put all this together to say, oh, see, it's all this alt-right, far-right, YouTube radicalization. No mention of radical Islam in this piece, by the way. That, that's not a thing that anyone has to worry about. You know, does YouTube radicalize? Does watching Al-Laki videos make you want to go blow up Times Square or something? Question mark. Uh, they're not, they don't want to deal with that. You know, that's, that's not a, a part of the radicalization. This guy, Mr. Kane, one thing, you know, to, just to skip to the end here, I'll give you the, uh, I'll help you avoid having to read through this, this, Really pretty garbagey piece. Uh, Mr. Kane, I, I don't I'm not aware of him taking any radical action here. They just found some guy to profile on this. They smeared a bunch of really interesting, really insightful conservatives by putting them together with people that are idiots and racists, but and other idiots and racists on the left too, you know? The 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 true Israelites or whatever those guys were called, the ones that yelled at the Covington kids, they've been around for a long time. They they'll put YouTube videos up, they'll put stuff up on the internet. But this guy, the the happy ending to this piece, so to speak, from the New York Times perspective, is that uh, this guy, Mr. Kane, at the end, starts looking at far left answers to the right on these questions. And that brings him that brings him back into what could be considered a, a civilized and, and decent perspective on this. Oh, OK. So the far left YouTube that's taking positions on these issues, that's good. That's not brainwashing. That's just sensible. Uh, Without a trace of irony, that's how this New York Times piece ends, you know. Thankfully, the far left is now getting involved on YouTube, the radical left, and they're answering these radical right-wing perspectives. And so all will be right in the world as long as YouTube engages in a whole lot of censorship and algorithm uh, algorithm favoring and blocking of right-wing content and all this, which is really what this is about now. I mean, the left is making an open play for an internet that they have dominance of out in the I mean out in the open now. They they just want it to be that the left gets to dominate communication on the internet because they've been they feel like they've lost too much ground, too many elections, uh they've lost too many arguments by allowing people to really think and find out for themselves. They'd much rather have Silicon Valley barons spoon feeding the public left wing slop. And that's what this YouTube article is really hoping will happen. I don't know about you, but I played a lot of dodgeball when I was a kid, and I was pretty good at it. I, uh, I had a pretty good arm, pretty good at, at catching the ball when it was thrown at me, reasonable uh, agility to get out of the way of the folks trying to take me out, and I was one of the ones they were trying to go for. Was I the last one left often on my side in dodgeball? Indeed. Indeed, I was. Was I uh, more than once 
second or third grade dodgeball champion. I don't mean to brag, but obviously. But turns out all that time, all those many years as a young kid running around during recess, which is what we called it, I guess, which is a fancier way of saying playtime. I didn't know this, but I was engaged in a form of unethical oppression. And there is, in fact, a, a movement of social scientists, which we know aren't real scientists, up in Canada saying that dodgeball, quote, isn't just problematic. It is an unethical tool of oppression. <laughs> I love. Oh, man. Lib academics. You guys are fun. You guys are a fun bunch. I enjoy getting to dig into stuff like this one. So there, there's some conference of. Conference of Commies up in Vancouver, the annual Congress of the Humanities and Social Science uh, Sciences, which just which just happened this past week up in Canada. And they're presenting papers and ideas and all these things. But one of the one of the funniest ones, one of the best ones of all is that, quote, the moral problem is that dodgeball encourages students to aggressively single out others for dominance and to enjoy that dominance as a victory. Um, or it's just a game where kids throw balls at each other and it's usually over in a couple of minutes and the balls, assuming that they're relatively soft and harmless. I mean, yeah, you shouldn't play dodgeball with little kids throwing baseballs at each other or something, right? It needs to be usually a kind of a large fluffy ball. Um, even, even using a volleyball. I know some of you are like, Buck, don't be a wimp. Using a volleyball can be a little, little harsh. It should be something that has a little bit of a sponge sponginess in it. The proper dodgeball should have some sponge, some give, or be a rubber ball inflated with air so it's soft but can still move pretty fast through the air. I look, I played a fair, I played my fair share of dodgeball back in the day. I'm, I'm just gonna tell you straight up. But uh, I didn't realize I was engaged in a form of, of oppression. And there's this this uh, story in the National Post in Canada. Keep in mind, they're not writing about dodgeball as oppression. And I now I ha I've never seen. Mark, have you seen the dodgeball movie with uh, uh, whatever the guy's name? I can't of course, remember the guy's it's a classic. Name. What's that guy's name? Is this you know? It's Vince Vaughn. From... I want to say no. Yeah, probably. But the other, you know, the guy who's from uh, so you know, um, there's something about Mary and meet the meet the Fockers and all that stuff. I know who you're talking about, but I can't grasp the name. Ben Ben Stiller. Thank you, yeah. Ben Stiller. He's in it, right? He's like the bad guy in it. Well. It's a classic. I should watch it. Maybe I'll watch it this. Maybe I'll watch it this weekend. It'd be kind of a fun one. You know, I like I like silly sports movies like that. Well, I've never seen that one, but I'm, I'm told it's good. But this article up in Canada is telling me that the children, the games that children play in schoolyards are famously horrible if you stop and think about them. So it's not just dodgeball that's coming in for the rough stuff here. There's some others that are about to get taken to task by. Canada's very serious social scientists, eh? Yeah, they're like really upset about this one. Tag, for example, singles out one participant, often the slowest child, as the dehumanized it. <laughs> this is serious. I'm this is what it says. I'm not making this up, all right? The dehumanized it, in turn, runs vainly in pursuit of the quicker ones. Um, Yes, but this is true of pretty much any sport if you're the slowest or the weakest or the worst it's not as fun and you probably want to get better at it 
But it gets oh, folks, this this is we're just beginning to pull apart the games that we all played and loved as children, like capture the flag, which is nakedly militaristic. <laughs> I love it. Oh, the capture the flag is a great game, by the way. I mean, if you have a good setup with capture the flag, and you you know you have reasonably evenly matched teams. I used to play capture the flag at summer camp. The whole camp would be in one capture the flag game. And if you actually managed to get that flag and get it across the other side, you were like a superstar for the night. You know, you were a hero. You got extra marshmallows to roast down by the campfire. Boom. Another game called British Bulldog has obvious jingoistic colonial themes. Uh, I have no, do you know, Mark, what's British Bulldog? Never heard of it. Producer Mike, British Bulldog. You've heard of this game? Oh, he hasn't heard of it. He's out smoking a stogie with the ladies. There's a game called Red Ass, which is known in America as Butts Up, which involves deliberate imposition of corporal punishment on the losers. Oh, my gosh. I've never played Butts Up before. But none rouse the passions of reform-minded educational progressives quite like dodgeball, the team sport in which players throw balls at each other, trying to hit their competitors and banish them to the sidelines of shame. These are the, I'm quoting from this piece in the National Post in Canada. They're serious about this. They want to get rid of they want to get rid of dodgeball. And they're applying the oh so rigorous intellectual standards of the Canadian social scientist, eh, to this issue. The Canadian Study for the Society for the Study of Education uh it has a trio of education theorists who are going to argue that dodgeball is not only problematic in the modern sense of displaying hierarchies of privilege based on athletic skill, but that it is outright miseducative. As the abstract for this discussion describes, those uh, they face marginalization, powerlessness, and helplessness of those perceived as weaker individuals through the exercise of violence and dominance by those who are considered more powerful. <laughs> they're, they're talking about they're talking about uh, grammar school kids playing a game where they throw balls at each other, uh, and it's you know, and they can't cross a line. But no, it's hierarchies of privilege, folks. Hierarchies of privilege. You know what? You know what they they need to tell these social scientists. Unfortunately, I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. Life is hierarchies of privilege. Life is people being separated based on ability, based on access, based on prestige, based on power, based on strength. That's life. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the ideal world, but that is the world that we live in. And, you know, were there some people that maybe were a little better than me at dodgeball back in the day? One, or, You know, there are a few, one or two. But is it just a game that we all learn? I mean, there's, you know, everyone goes through things where they're not particularly, uh, they're not particularly good or, or skilled. And, and that's a learning experience. Life is accepting that you're not good at everything. Life is understanding that just because you wish things would be a certain way, they will not be that way. And you can either take action, you can run away from it, or you can suffer in silence. So there, there is a, uh, but by the way, in dodgeball, you don't allow headhunting, obviously. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not savages. You know, you, you can't throw the ball at somebody's head, obviously. You got to keep it below the neck. I think that's okay. Because sometimes you'll get some kid that's been held back like three years. And, and he just starts, you know, just 
beating balls off of kids' faces all over the place if you let them, and that's not fun. I know. See, some of some of you are are being savages right now. You're yelling at me like, "Oh, Buck, you, you dodgeball. You you can't anywhere on the body's allowed in dodgeball. Don't be a wimp." I, I'm not saying put on a helmet. I'm just saying it's got to be for it to count. It should be below you know below the neck. That's that's the way civilized. That's the way civilized dodgeball is played. You know, unlike some of you listening to this, being so savage, you eat cannibals for breakfast. You know, let's be real here, folks. There are rules in dodgeball, and that's why it also reinforces that we all need to obey the same rules, that we need to, you know, work as a team. There's a lot of good in dodgeball that they don't even talk about here, but instead they just call it a tool of oppression. And, and I mean this. One of the problems that the left never addresses and I don't think can address is that life is life is full of oppression. People will always be oppressed in life in one way or another. Life is full of different kinds of oppression. And trying to create oppression-free environments for kids, I don't, and I'm not talking about systematic racial oppression and things like that. Yeah, obviously you need to try to have some degree of, of, of legal and social equality, and you should strive for the maximum of, of those and as well as other, you know, g- gender e- equality. But you can't have equality in everything or else you can't have competition. You can't have struggle. You can't have learning. You can't have growth. You can't have loss. None of those things are possible if you have absolute equality. So dodgeball is really a learning tool. And if nothing else, you learn if you can't compete, Stand behind the nerdy kid with the inhaler, the glasses, and the Velcro shoes, because at least he'll get hit first. Sometimes people say to me, Buck, is it really fair to refer to libs as crazy? And I respond, yes. It is fair. It is right. It is accurate. There are many, many, many libs who, I don't mean they're crazy as in they have mental health issues. That's not something to make jokes about. I mean they're crazy as in their political ideology is wacko, divorced from reality, separate from the day-to-day world that we all exist in. And it's a it's a fiction, a fiction that really only exists in their mind, and they take action in the real world based on that fiction. So the non-clinical but very effective way to describe this is to just refer to them as being nuts, because they are. They are simply, clearly, and truly wacko. And if you ever think to yourself, well, Buck, I need proof of this. I can't hang out and and go around and say things about how the libs are nuts and not be able to immediately point to something that's just proof of a very specific ideologically driven liberal insanity. And for evidence, you could call it Exhibit A. I would give you a story up today on CNN, another place where there's a lot of lib nonsense and, and, and craziness. But this, but it's called birth strike. The people refusing to have kids because of climate change. Huh. Let me read you a little bit of the story and then we can both enjoy the the utter the, the sheer lunacy that is on display in this. Climate change is rapidly changing the environment we live in. That's the first line of the CNN piece. Wow. They really ending the sentence with a preposition. Climate change is rapidly changing (laughs) the environment we live in. Only the best over at CNN. Only the best. But how far would you be willing to go to help save the planet? Question mark. Would you skip school? Eat pig's feet? 
How about forgo having kids? For 33-year-old British musician Blythe Pepino, not a real name, the latter is a reality. Her fears about climate change are so strong she has decided not to have biological children. I really want a kid, she told CNN. I love my partner and I want a family with him, but I don't feel like this is a time that you can do that. Pepino believes there will be an ecological Armageddon and founded Birth Strike at the end of 2018. Birth Strike is a group of people who are declaring their decision not to have kids because of climate change. So far, 330 whole people have joined. 80% of them are women. Now, you may say, Buck, this is only 330 people. No, Birth Strike, this group that CNN is writing a news story on, is only 330 people. But I can tell you this, they all would seem normal to you before you talk politics with them, for the most part. You know, maybe some of them are you know, white guys with dreadlocks who sell glassware and follow the band Fish around everywhere. But, but for the most part, they would seem relatively normal to you. So it's only when you engage them on a political issue that the absurdity and the insanity of their position becomes so apparent. They don't want to have children because they're afraid of climate change. This is a mental this is a mental disorder. I mean, this is a problem. This is like somebody who won't go outside. This is agoraphobia. Uh, this is arachnophobia, irrational fear of spiders. I mean, this belongs in that category of an irrational fear of the future. But it's not one that comes from nothing. It's not one that just jumps out of thin air at people. Right. This isn't uh, some of the other fears or you, you have to get very deep into the psychotherapy about where they come from and what the underlying reasons would be. This is taking what we are told by the lib media and by the Democratic Party and running with it and believing it. This is believing that what the Democrats say about the world ending in 12 years is true. This is the end result of taking the 90% of or 99% of scientists line believe in catastrophic climate change to its conclusion. If 99% of scientists believe this, if the global consensus is that we must act now or else, are these people crazy? Or are they just believing authorities around them who claim to have the only true scientific knowledge when it comes to this issue? that everyone else has bad faith and bad motivation. People like me who understand and, and recognize that climate change hysteria is certain to be wrong, uh, has been wrong many times in the past, is politically motivated. And you can tell this by the arguments they make. You don't you don't even have to open up the books. You don't have to look at the numbers, although when you do look at the numbers, you find that they have to readjust and readjust and readjust. Because it turns out the numbers are not on their side. They always have to keep changing it over time. But this is where I have to say the, the people that react in this way, they're the, the true believers, in a sense. They're the ones that listen to the government, li listen to the Democrat consensus in this country and other countries. Uh, they're the ones that think that the scientific community that peddles this fear-mongering must be telling us the truth because they're scientists. You know, they wear white lab coats. They're like Bill Nye, the science guy, who's a 
guy who has an undergraduate degree in engineering. I mean, Bill, Bill Nye is the all-time science expert guy, the same way that because I have a political science degree from Amherst, everyone should just refer to me as the politics guy. Knows more about politics than everybody else because he has an undergrad degree in that subject matter. I don't think that's the case. I don't think he would do that. But if these people are the ones who listen and believe what they're told is true, if they take the climate change alarmists at their word, what are, what are the rest of them? You know, what are the people that aren't changing their behavior? That not only will they, will they continue to have kids, despite the fact the world's going to end in 12 years, uh, but that don't sell their beachfront properties or that still fly in private jets or don't change any of their individual behaviors in response to exhortations from the scientific community that the world's going to end unless they do this. I mean, they must be, there really are only two options. They're sociopaths. They just don't care about anyone or anything but themselves, which may be true about a lot of libs. Or they're hypocrites. And they don't really believe what they pretend to believe. Because while I can show you these birth strike people are completely nuts, they're the ones that are taking action based on what we're told. They believe the climate change consensus. It's the, the rest of the people that run around and say, do you believe in climate change? As though that's going to end the debate when you say, well, yeah, I mean, the climate's changing. Climate has always changed. And there will be you know, weather-based environmental disruptions, just like there always have been, and we should adapt to them. But there's nothing, there's nothing to be freaked out about here. The people that will look at you like you're a monster for saying that, Aren't they monsters for not taking seriously their side's rhetoric about the whole world ending? So, you know, the birth strikers, yeah, we know they're crazy. You and I know they're crazy. But are libs in a position to call them crazy? I think the answer is quite obviously no. Some people ask, why are there so many Democrats running for president? And I say, look, you got this, you got this going the wrong way here. Think about this the wrong way. It's really about the entertainment value of some of these Democrats. You know, yeah, they're not going to be president. They know they're not going to be president. Right? No one really thinks that Marianne Williamson is going to be president of the United States, including Marianne Williamson. And a lot of you are probably thinking, Buck, who the heck is that? Exactly. Exactly. Um, there's a whole bunch of other candidates. Too. I can't even name them all. And I, I work in political media for a living, right? I, I don't even know who, what all their names are. If you showed me all their photos... Not even sure I'd get all their names with the photos to prompt me along. There's some real third-tier stuff going on here, maybe fourth and fifth-tier stuff. But it's still fascinating and very entertaining. You get guys like Eric Swalwell, who really, I think, staked his career on the Russia collusion uh, end of a Trump presidency. That was what he was promising. That's what we were supposed to get. That, that did not happen. And so he's going around now trying to convince people to vote for him based on radical anti-gun stances, anti-Second Amendment stances, and, and how he, he tries to speak as a, he recognizes his white male privilege, of course, and that he is inherently, because of his gender and skin color, part of the patriarchy, but also thinks that he can understand the concerns of the intersectional left somehow. And he had a moment when he was speaking over the weekend, uh, you know, I, I don't even, he was on stage somewhere on C-SPAN, doing some rally or something. And he just he's a real womp womp machine. Play, play the clip. But I will always be real with you. I will be bold without the bold. My wife and I, we fight insurance companies. When 
I'm not even sure what. We, I, I will be bold without the bowl. Was that, was he trying to make a play on words with bull? It sounded like he said without the bowl. The bull? Is Eric Swalwell a false flag candidate run by conservatives as a satire of the typical beta male lib? Think about that before you answer it. Is it possible that Swalwell is really in this race because a bunch of conservatives got together and said, if we were creating the prototypical beta male liberal to run and to say the things that now a liberal white male has to say or else he'll be uh, excommunicated from the left and it has to do this bending of the knee and the self-flagellation and the oh i i'm make me president but i know i'm not so great and i know that i'm part of oppression but i want to end oppression you know all this stuff is all that possible in the character of eric swalwell himself <laughs> my, my buddy jesse kelly tweeted out about that same soundbite every time i hold the stud finder up to my chest and make the beeping sound in front of my wife reminds him of Eric Swalwell. <laughs> Eric Swalwell is oh, he's such a nerd. But he is not not necessarily the most cringe-inducing of Democrat candidates. Uh, you may know this. It was Pride weekend over the weekend, and there were there were a lot of Pride parades. I went out to dinner. Uh, what was it over the weekend? And and sure enough, uh, saw some of the aftermath of Pride parade stuff. And uh, Kirsten Gillibrand who used to be for gun rights and now says the NRA is the worst organization in America, used to be the female CEO who didn't want to be thought of as like the mommy and now is all about being a mommy who's also going to be president. Right? I mean, just changes however she has to change. She has this video, and you have to see the video. It's on my Twitter account. I tweeted it out. But where she's dancing in a rainbow-colored gay pride T-shirt and with a video camera on her, just happens to let this slip at the right time. Play it. Gay rights! Gay, gay rights! <laughs> she yells out, gay rights! Yeah, yeah, that was a really authentic moment from Kirsten Gillibrand. Just happened to be dancing with like a bunch of, you know, necklaces on at a bar, drinking shots, being cool, pride shirt on. Gay rights! Because that's what, that's what everybody who's, who's at the parade, they, they just randomly have a video camera on them when they yell out gay rights. Oh, Dillebrand. She is in this race so that Elizabeth Warren is not the least authentic person in the race. That's what Gillibrand does. So she, she has a purpose here. And Swalwell is to make us all feel manlier by comparison. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. letting the uh, dubstep roll call air out there for a second it's the first day of a new world for the buckster i woke up this morning at 8 15 a.m like a very civilized fellow and i know it's a lot that's later than most of you probably wake up but i needed to sort of catch up on some sleep i stayed up late last night watching Castlevania on Netflix, the cartoon that reminded me of the video game I played as a as a youth. Is it particularly good? No. 
But could I stay up late because I didn't have to get up at the crack of dawn? Yes. Yes, it was very nice. Very nice. And there's additional energy now to devote to all things Freedom Hut, which is very exciting for me. All right. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And I got to figure out if there, Mike, is there a uh, email thing that we have on the website yet? We got to we got to come into the digital age here and start doing stuff like that. I know we've the website's been redone and updated. It looks all pretty now. BuckSexton.com. Do we have an email contact form thing? You know, one of those thingies with the email form that you contact, and I, we'll we'll figure it out. I'm on it now. I got time now. My excuse is gone for all of your requests when you say, "Hey, Buck, can you do this?" And I say, "Well, I'll try to get to it, but I'm busy chatting with libs every day over at the hill." Uh, turns out that uh, no, I will be less busy. I'll still be busy, but I'll be less busy. John writes, Shields High, Real News Days fan. Well, John, kicking it back now for, we started Real News in 20, in January or so of 2012, I think, or something like that, maybe. I forget. I forget when Real News started, but I think it was 2012. Uh, Watching Chernobyl, I got the sense that it was making nuclear energy look bad. The left would love to use the opportunity to use Chernobyl or a three-mile island to shake a finger at and say we can't use that for energy. Now, John, I, I think that that's, there's some truth to that, and it's frustrating because the, uh, the way that the show depicts the Soviet bureaucracy, I'm very, uh, very much in favor of. I mean, I, I think that it did a good job showing you that the Soviets... They worship this master of the state and the people that run the state machinery have no interest whatsoever in in the truth when the truth is not advantageous to them. Uh, But the treatment of nuclear energy in the show is not good. Uh, It's just not good. The way that they show people and I mentioned this last week, bleeding and immediately their hand almost eroding because of the uh, the nuclear uh, the, the nuclear energy and the radiation that it was giving off. Uh, the, the very way that the scientist uh, describes, I can't remember his name now, it's like Latikov or something, I forget his, his real... Have you seen this producer, uh, producer Mark? Have you seen Chernobyl yet? I uh, have watched the first three episodes. There we go. What do you think so far? I enjoy it. I need to get around to watching the rest, but I, I like the suggestion. Uh, it's a good show. Yeah, thank you. All right, good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, but the way that they show the nuclear energy, uh, the radiation poisoning and all that, is, it's just not, it, it's, scienti- it's scientifically sloppy. It, you still would have had a lot of dramatic tension without completely mischaracterizing the dangers of, uh, the nu- of nuclear, uh, nuclear radi- radiation. I, I just would say also the aftermath stuff was what bothered me the most, where they claim that there were, you know, essentially millions of people irreparably harmed by this meltdown. People were harmed and people did die, but there's no need to exaggerate it. And I think that there was very obvious exaggeration at the end of it. And then when you add to it that the creator of the show, the showrunner, said that this is somehow about Trump. I'm like, this is not about Trump, dude. You can try. This is a historical event. You can try to tie it to Trump the same way you can tie bad weather tomorrow to Trump. But it's a silly thing to do. It's a foolish thing to do. Laurel writes, hey, Buck, your idea of using the Muslim ban to stop the flow of Central American and South American migrants has merit 
even if it will be inflammatory to the left. Laurel, that's for sure. But the central problem exists of why they want to be in the U.S. and not stay in their home country. We know that most of these migrants are economic migrants looking for better paying work. Did you also know that remittances sent to Central and South American countries were $53 billion in 2018? That's from the World Bank. It's estimated that 95% of that is sent from the United States. Mexico's economy in particular takes in $33 billion, making it less economically rewarding to work in the U.S. President Trump's effectively slowed the rate of migrants uh, through high taxes on outgoing remittances to Central and South American countries. It will also have the added benefit of causing pain to their home countries, which they'll want to see reversed and will take steps to stop or slow migrants from coming here illegally. Well, Laurel, taxing remittances has been out there as a a plan, as an idea for a while. And I do think that there's uh, there's plenty of reason to to get into that and and to to have that discussion. Uh, The issue with the Democrats will be that they they'll say that this is hurting poor people and the the optics of it don't look particularly strong. And Democrats, Democrats will demagogue the you know what out of the issue, suggesting that, you know, Wall Street should be paying the taxes, not hardworking day laborers, sending money back to their families in Mexico or Venezuela or who knows where. Uh, But thank you, Laurel. Good to have you running in. Uh, Jamie writes, Buck, on one of the weekend news shows, I heard Robert Francis O'Rourke speak for the first time. I must say your impersonation of him is spot on. Thanks, Jamie in Panama City. Well, Jamie, I like really appreciate that. And even though I can't get above 1% in the polls right now, I just, I want you to give me your heart. Beto. What could have been, Beto? What could have been? Deborah, right? A bunch of long stuff that I can't get to right now. Chris, right? Buck, I grew up in the 70s and 80s in Germany. Nuclear power was the boogeyman of the time. Even acknowledging the terrible devastation of the Japanese tsunami nuclear disaster, the damage to the environment pales against the environmental damage of developing nations who live through primitive environmental disasters caused by poverty and even natural disasters. If you compare the no-go zones of Japan and Chernobyl, there are many worse non-nuclear disasters that devastate entire regions. Hollywood poisoned the well for generations to come. Yeah, Chris, uh, nuclear is is a boogeyman and has been for a long time. Nuclear power, as I understand it, you could fit all of the nuclear power waste that has ever been created in a warehouse. I was told this recently by a nuclear uh, by a, a nuclear energy expert by a warehouse, I think a couple of football fields long, 10 stories high. All the nuclear waste that has ever, ever, ever been been created could fit into essentially one big building somewhere. Uh, the the uh, storyline you hear is that nuclear waste, it, they're always close to having some kind of a shutdown. We can never get rid of the waste. We'll never figure out what to do when entire cities can be powered by nuclear plants. And Europe is better on this issue than we are. I mean, the French have been much more willing to embrace nuclear power uh, than we have in this country because of the environmental lobby. And I do think that there is a a bad faith hatred of nuclear power that comes from the environmental left because they don't want an industrial solution to their climate change hysteria. They want wind and solar and, you know, they don't want it to be nuclear. 
meanwhile, wind and solar will not be able to power the American economy anytime soon. It's ridiculous. The technology's not there. That's just that's just the way things are. Let's see here. Andrew Shields. Hi, Buck. I'm calling balderdash on Chernobyl's depiction of animal extermination squads. As you said, radiation poisoning isn't a transferable disease. So the premise of exterminating the dogs and cats of the exclusion uh, zone would have been counterproductive. I suspect a total fabrication solely for the sake of the scene where he has to kill the puppy. Um, Andrew, I I think you're right. I I think that you are correct on this one. And I don't know if maybe at the time they were so panicked that there were some pet uh, pet extermination squads from the milita- from the Soviet military that went out there to track down Fido because he had been irradiated. Does anyone ever call their dog Fido anymore? You know, it's kind of the John Doe of dog names. Does anyone actually say, yeah, I'm going to name my dog Fido? Just putting that out there. But yeah, the, the, uh, the cat that was close to the Chernobyl meltdown does not carry around with it radiation that kills everybody that it touches. That's that's not how radiation works. It's internalized and then it's within that person. It's not a they really do treat radiation almost like a a zombie apocalypse disease strain. And that's not correct. So the science was very for a show that's this high profile and gotten this much attention. The science is very shaky. Uh, Well, it's just wrong in some places. And it didn't need to be wrong. That's, you know, do you to use dramatic interpretation or to write in a scene to make a point? We all we all understand. That's fine. You're going to do that stuff when you're making a TV show. But when you're explaining in, in some detail the science of nuclear reactor at different points in the show, I think it would be better to stick to the actual science of the disaster and not make it up as you go along. <clears throat> Cheryl writes, Buck Unleashed. Can't wait. Looking forward to all you're going to do. Wishing you all the best. Cheryl, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yes, Buck is unleashed. And uh, things are going to get... Things are going to get spicy. Uh, Giselle writes, Hey, Buck, are you going to stay in D.C.? You're going to move back to New York. Giselle, time will tell, my friend. Time will tell. We shall see how that, uh, how that ends up shaking out. Uh, now we have some more in the roll call box here. Nadine. All right, Buck, listen to the podcast here at work. I'm a bit behind hearing you more, uh, more about you going buck wild and getting the things that allow your talents to shine. So very excited for you. Looking forward to what you have coming for the rest of us. Long time listener. Very much appreciate your insight, wisdom beyond your years and ability to laugh at yourself. Hope you'll come back to us here in New York. Well, thank you very much, Nadine. Appreciate the kind note today and Yes, we are going to be getting buck wild, but until then, shields high.